Welcome back to Rethinking Politics, episode 56. Today we're going to be discussing some historical things. Specifically, we're going to be looking at the founding. And we're going to be looking at the founding for a variety of reasons. I mean, there's there's so many aspects we could be considering. We could be talking about the Constitution. We could be talking about the the formation of the country. We could be talking about uh, all kinds of things from all kinds of perspectives. What we want to do is look at how people read things back into history. And as we do that, clarify a few things about the founding. One kind of pro, one, we're, we're going to kill some myths, I suppose, is maybe the right way to think of it. Uh, and we'll explore those myths as we, as we get to them. Um, but people have such a difficult time reading history. And part of the problem is probably that they're not reading history, that they're reading someone else's summary of history that is based in what they thought was important, and they're getting mm-hmm. that propaganda. And then they go somewhere else, somewhere higher, a source they trust better. They, they get their story from high school, and then they go somewhere else, and they get a different story, and they go, oh, man. I have been lied to and deceived and everything I know is false and this is the truth. And what they've done is they've taken one mythologized version of the history and traded it for a different one that they liked better Mm -hmm. and, uh, and gone from there. And they've, they, they have not actually engaged with history in any serious manner and they don't know any of the nuances. And they've got this, this narrative that if you were to actually be able to go back in time, the people there, and you told the people, this is what's happening, they would have thought you were crazy. They would have had no idea what you were even talking about, let alone how you came to the conclusions you came to. And that's this, that's a problem that I think is uh, a major one in our culture today is people are becoming more and more, uh, what's the word, disaffected mm-hmm. by our, by society, right? They're becoming more conspiratorial. They're embracing grand narratives that are internally consistent, but far too simple to reflect the real world. And you know, it's, I, I see it in a variety of ways. I see it in religion, right? People get this, this simple version of their religion as they grow up. They find that that's not true and they feel betrayed. Yeah. They feel that the simple story is just not accurate. It's, yeah, they, they, it's, a, it's a strange sense of betrayal that people get as they, they feel like they've been lied to. Yeah, and that's... I mean, that's literally the idea behind wokeness is, you know, is that you're waking up to to reality instead of being asleep, instead of being in this state of being lied to and self-delusion, you wake up and realize this is what's going on. It's that same that same reaction. Yes. Yeah. That's That's exactly what that word is implying, isn't it? Mm hmm. Yeah. So to start with, let me just make a few a few basic points about history which is to say that well before before you do that dan i go for it i just want to i just want to add a little bit about what you're talking about because you talked about how we want to talk about the founding we want to talk about some myths and stuff there we also want to talk about some of the some of the uh the new ideas that have sprung up today about history and about american history in particular and dispel some myths there as well you know you you're all familiar with the 1619 project and and a lot of the implications there about colonialism and about slavery and about how those things connect um, history in particular american history to to systemic racism today and that's an example of that 
that wokeness that that we were just talking about that's an example of that where you grew up and you were in you know elementary school and high school and you were told this is what happened in America and then later on you find out hey there's more to it that you weren't exposed to early on and then you wake up to the new reality which is the 1619 project and that's the idea behind it is to wake kids up earlier to these ideas Right, right. It's an application of critical theory, which we'll talk about a little bit more in depth as we as we discuss it. But yeah, you're absolutely right. So there's really there's two major myths that we want to discuss. The one is what Brad was just indicating, which is a modern myth, right? That's new. That's new and and that's why you have to wake up to it. It's not it's not generally what you're taught in school, though that's changing and that's something that people are fighting over in the state state uh, legislatures right now. Uh, as some states have made it illegal to, t- to teach critical theory in schools and to, and to teach these kind of historical narratives. But then there's the, the kind of narrative that's been there all along that is often embraced by conservatives that leads to a, a almost a religious conviction of, of the founding and the principles of our country and, uh, and that has its own myths built into it, right? It has its own, its own stories that are an oversimplification. Um, that are that lead you to certain conclusions about the beliefs of the founders where you mm-hmm. look at what the founders did and you go, yeah, I agree with what they did. And I think we should return to those principles. No. And that's, and that is literally the origin. That philosophy, that idea is the origin for Trump's campaign slogan of make America great again is the idea of what we had before is literally just what we want. You know, that that's yeah. the founding was so good that the, the country we had was so amazing. And of course, the time period that you're talking about is always going to be vague. But at some point in the past, you know, what we had was so amazing that all we need is to return to that. And then you've got the the 1619 project and and this woke idea, which says that what we had then was really so corrupted by all of these these evil things that we don't want anything to do with it. And those and both of those views when you think about it are are pretty extreme as Dan was saying, which is not surprising in in today's world of of extremes. But but they're they're also interesting because they're talking about the same the same thing, you know, the same bit of history that that we've that we have in this country and yet they're viewed so differently and they've become so important today in modern politics those two competing views often result in two completely different worldviews and two completely different ways of thinking about things that make dialogue and so many other things so difficult mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. now it's as you're talking i can think of so many exam- historical examples that that paint this, but I mean, we've, we've got the two that we picked for a particular reason. We'll get into those. As you're reading history, you're going to read your own questions back into the history. And that's, that's fine. I mean, that's better than reading your own conclusions back into history, which you're going to do that too. But, but you're, you're looking for something, right? You're wondering what they thought about certain things. And, and so when you see an event that seems to answer that question, that could answer that question, we assume it is an answer to that question is if they're addressing our specific question. For example, when conservatives look back and they say, what should the government do? They think the Constitution is the answer to that question. Mm -hmm. They look back, they go, how would we know 
what these men, who I respect and revere and are, were very wise, what they think about the role of government in life. And they go, well, we could look at the Constitution, which was a major struggle, right? And a key detail of the founding, key details, the, <laughs> <laughs> this, the very substance of the founding after the, the revolution. Um, and they, and they're looking to that as a guide for the principles of the founders. And then they take things like the Federalist Papers, which are arguments made in favor of the Constitution. And they interpret those and they go, this is, these are the principles of good government, according to these wise men. Well, and, and, and I, I think you're, you're watering down how people feel, feel about it. You said, you said <laughs> things like they take these things as a guide to how you can find principles of good government. And I'd say, say, no, Dan, that's, that's not what they do. They, they take this document and say, this is good government, period. You know, this right here yes. is all you need to know. Because, because I think we can all agree that there's, there's definitely at least, at, at the very least, there's some value in some of the structures and ways the Constitution was set up. You know, and that's, that's not an extreme statement, but the idea that this Constitution is the end-all, be-all of government is a very commonly held belief. I mean, I, I remember when the Tea Party movement you know, was came into popularity not not too many years ago, and that was one of their fundamental ideas: is the government that was created on that day was basically perfect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's interesting. There's a there is an uh, some some of the the people listening probably share our faith, and there are some uh, some scriptural things about that. You should you should message us if you want our opinion on that because there's. Uh, that, that really directly combines our religious views or, or touches on this question. Um, and with that, so many other of the Christian groups seem to have embraced that same view. For whatever reason, it, this seems to be among conservative religious people that this view is dominant, that the Constitution is viewed as a, as a religious, as, as a, a manifestation as a of perfection, as a divine yes, yes. document. Yeah, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, and <laughs> you're right. I was probably understating their, their conviction of it. Um, here's, here's what happens though. If you, if you take that seriously, you say the answer to the question, what should government do is the constitution. You're going to arrive at a number of conclusions. Uh, the first amendment is, is one of the most obvious ones. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion is how it begins. Right? It then talks about the press and free exercise, those kind of things. We've, we've extrapolated from that, that amendment, first amendment, a variety of other things, the right of association and things like that, the right of the, pre- the free press. But that first statement, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Well, Congress apparently, the government, shouldn't do anything about religion. According to that, I almost said verse, like I'm quoting scripture, <laughs> according to that phrase, right? And so you'd assume then that religion is to be protected from government. And you get this, this phrase from Thomas Jefferson in a letter about the separation of church and state that is later read back as an instantiation of the principle of that first amendment. 
it's not. But even, but even if it was, or, or you can you can set that aside for now. I'm not going to deal with that because I think there are some conservatives who do realize that that's not a reflection of, of what it's meant to be like. Um, they, they weren't indicating some kind of wall. They respect, they're saying Congress should not make any laws about the religions, right? And so today, the way that's manifest is if you make a law and it has certain effects on religion, they could say, they could argue, even if it applies equally to everything that it's that it's actually about religion and there's mm-hmm. there's certain protections to religion, etc. Here's a factual, a fact about the the founding that most people don't know that should immediately cause serious problems with how we interpret that amendment. There were at least four states, I believe there were five and maybe even six states, that at the time that the Constitution was put in place, ratified, accepted, binding on the states, these states had established religions. Yeah, which means a state religion. A state state religion, religion. excuse me, like you'd have in, in England. Massachusetts had a state religion. And if you read the amendment with that in mind, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. They were not worried the federal government would establish a religion or suppress religion generally. They were they worried, worried they would interfere with the state's established religions. With the state's established religions. They basically is, were saying religion shall be left up to the states. It's not going to be can, handled on a federal level. And they could establish one if they want to. You want a state religion? Perfect. There are already several out there, and we're going to leave them completely alone. You know, this this historical issue is is really funny to me, Dan, because what do people always say about, you know, prayer in school or any other issue is they say it's church and state. Church yeah. and state. That is not in this amendment. That is not in the Constitution anywhere. The separation of church and state is something that Thomas Jefferson said, I believe this is right, Dan, you can tell me if I'm wrong, in a letter to someone talking about a particular issue. So there is no governing document, there is no even supporting document that talks about a separation of church and state. It simply happens that one of the people that we associate with the founding of the United States mentioned that phrase, and that phrase has become a part of the governing documents, the governing, the the laws in the United States now are based off of that phrase, because that phrase and that idea behind it has been used by the Supreme Court in deciding how the law works, which means that, that you know, the Supreme Court is using Thomas Jefferson's words as a legal document, which is crazy. But <laughs> it is crazy. But of course, the it Supreme is. Court did yeah. that because the Supreme Court is simply an instrument of of popular opinion. You know, if you look at how people feel about any given issue, once they decide something within a given number of years, the Supreme Court yeah. will end up agreeing with them. Yeah, it's a delayed effect because mm-hmm. of the way the office almost are appointed, always. There's a few times when they when they're when they're at the cutting yes. edge. Yes, yes but that's for true. the most part. That's- if all the people feel a certain way, the Supreme Court will will follow. It'll get there. It'll get there. Yeah. But, no, but the it's... point is, is that how we remember this historical event is just completely wrong. It's wrong. It's just yeah. wrong. 
it's wrong at every level. Massachusetts would f- had it had on the books a law that they would fine you for not attending their established church. Right? That's that. <laughs> most conservatives looking at the freedoms granted in the Constitution do not look at how much there there is actually obligated at the state level and at mm-hmm. the city level. Mm-hmm. And if and as I said, if you're looking at the Constitution as a guide to the limitations on government, you are looking in the wrong place. You're looking at the limitations on the federal government, which they were jealously limiting, jealously and zealously limiting, because they were so thrilled about the many limitations they already had at the state level, right? And they didn't want the federal government ruining that. In some cases, they were worried the federal government would would take away their established religions. Now, if you haven't heard of these established religions, it's probably because they didn't last all that long. But they last, but they didn't go away because they were illegal. They didn't mm-hmm. go away because someone read the First Amendment and was like, these are against the law. Mm-hmm. No, they were not. They were deliberately protected in the First Amendment. That's what that respecting the establishment of religion is about. It, at the end of the day, it actually says nothing other than this, the federal government can't mess with the established religions, right? It says, it says something so limited that it's like, like you were saying, what we have today, even the conservatives who are arguing, wait, 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 wait. The founders never intended a separation of, of church and state the way we think of it. Usually, I, I don't know if I, I've run into so few people who were aware of the established religions to begin with that they also end up interpreting it wrong. They interpret it as some kind of protection against the state, but not protecting the state from religion, which would be which is how it's often interpreted. Like religions can't have certain effects on the state. And they're like, no, 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 no. Mm-hmm. It was just the state on the religion. Mm-hmm. It's a mute point either way. Both are wrong, right? That's not what this, that's not what it says. That's not what it was talking about. And this is one example. And we use religion specifically because of how often, as I mentioned, this, this, the group who reads the constitution in this manner are, are explicitly pro-religion and want religion further you can, you protected from the state. You can call them conservatives, Dan. You don't need to, oh, to, to shield I, their identity. The, the group that reads the Constitution <laughs> the <group>. this way. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't <laughs> Funny the weird things we pick up and phrase the way we phrase things. Uh, there, there are other things like that, right? Where you get the Tea Party today. The Tea Party is a great example of a group that I largely agreed with who were drawing principles from histor- from historical facts that do not support their principles. Mm-hmm. They're so often, they're looking at the way things are. The word constitution itself, we are weird. Uh, well, we were weird. We're not weird anymore. Lots of places have a written constitution. Oh, we are weird, just for different reasons. We're, so, we're still weird. We're still weird. I'm, I'm making a general statements about weirdness here. That I, it's that, really, that, really that, important. That as Remember a, this. As a self-proclaimed weird person, I defend <laughs> that. <laughs> the state, uh, the United States was was an oddity in that it had a written constitution. When the word constitution itself is a reference to the the, uh, if you said how is something constituted? Yeah. How, so how is, is it, it made formed? up? How is it constructed? What, yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. So when you're talking about the constitution of a country, you're talking about the way it operates, you could go, you could go to this day and talk to the, the British about their constitution. And they would know exactly what you're talking about. 
We use the word in a different way, that is, it's caught on more generally because other people have mimicked our constitution over the years. But initially, uh, when people are talking about the constitution, even in our country, they're often not talking about the written constitution. They're talking about the actual practical way in which it all works. And, uh, and that's a, that's another thing where people think often they're referring to the constitution explicitly and they're not. They're referring to just the general way in which government works. And their, their reverence for the constitution was in their conviction that the division of powers and things and the way that it, the way that the government chafed together, the, the pieces do not fit neatly in a way that can mo- operate like a smooth and powerful organism in the way that people like Alexander Hamilton really wanted. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, it's, it's much more painful than that. <laughs> and it's deliberately painful, right? It's deliberately painful to slow things down, to hinder things, to make things rough. Uh, and all of that is in so many ways, not an effort to limit government, but to limit the federal government against the state government, which is where they had much more influence and say, and where they had already established so many rules. And with the founding, many of them rewrote their state constitutions to update some of the structure, but the laws and things didn't really change in the states and the states had massive powers. They still do. States can still do things that the federal government can't do. The Supreme Court would throw it out, which is hard to believe because the Supreme Court throws very little out. But, <laughs> but there's still many powers that the state has that the federal government doesn't have. And they always had, and they were exercising even hundreds of years ago. So so while we're throwing wrenches, Dan, I want to throw one more into, into this myth of, of the Constitution as this immutably perfect document. And by the way, uh, well, I, I'm going to save my disclaimers for the end. Um, Fair enough. You know, you mentioned Hamilton and about how he wanted this streamlined big government, right? And that's something he pushed for. You know, he energy. Wanted a, he energy wanted, is what he talks about in the Federalist Papers. It needs to be energetic. Yeah, he. I mean, he even wanted a monarchy like like they like they had had <laughs> before. And and people talk about how how crazy he is for wanting these things. But the thing we forget about is that when the Constitution was created. It was, in the conservative way of thinking today, a move towards big government. That was its entire purpose. They weren't trying to restrict the government. They weren't trying to rein in a large government. They had already defeated Great Britain years before and were now living in freedom. In, you know, every state had its own government and was operating just fine. There was the Articles Confederation that was a connection, a loose connection between these states. And the purpose of the Constitution was to increase the power of the federal government that we had. The federal government we had at that time was impotent. In, in the truest sense of the word, it did not have the power to do very much of anything. It didn't have any monetary yeah. power. It didn't have the ability to, to, to feed an army. I mean, one of the, one of the main, one of the large reasons why we had a constitution in the first place is because during the American Revolution, I mean, this is, and see, this is, it's funny we talk about history because I'm oversimplifying. Everything I say is oversimplifying, <laughs> but just one example. So let me just say one example of, of a need that was realized was that we had an army that we couldn't feed because none of the states were willing to donate very much money towards the cause. And 
the the Continental Congress, this governing body that had been created, had no power to produce any more resources for the army. And because of that, we almost lost the war. I mean, there were several times where we almost lost the war and almost lost the entire army in large part because of that. And so that was a real fear that had been created, a fear that we would be that we would be defeated by Great Britain again and, and you know, become subject to their will. I mean, the fact that we did have the War of 1812 shows that there was some some credence to that idea, that there that there were threats to these states and that they needed to organize and work together. But that doesn't change the fact that in so doing, they were moving towards big government. And that's why so much of of the Constitution and these amendments are restrictions on the federal government, and that's what conservatives focus on today. But the reason those those restrictions were put in place in the first place is because they were giving so many new powers to the federal government, and people were really afraid of what would happen because of that. Because they're like, hey, you're moving towards big government. You know, Dan, you mentioned the Federalist Papers. The Federalist Papers, you know, James Madison, John Jay, Alexander Hamilton, those Federalist Papers, the Federalists were the big government party, the yeah. party who wanted more government. And then you had the Anti-Federalists who were the ones saying, hey, I just want to live on my farm and and I think things are fine how they are now. Maybe government doesn't need to interfere this much. Maybe we don't need new taxation and all of these restrictions and things. You know what I mean? And so it just it's totally different than – than how we how we picture it today that many conservatives today if they were living back then would not have been in favor of the constitution yeah they would have been they would have been anti they would have been at least skeptical at least yeah. skeptical of this of this you think the infrastructure plan is bad how about we completely restructure the government to give it more power yeah one of my favorite writings i believe it was hamilton again uh, <laughs> Hamilton is my favorite punching bag of the of the, the founding. It's like the which CNN is not of the which day. is not fair. I mean, his opinions were fringe as far as the uh, as far as the constitutional convention is concerned. But as far as the arguments by the big government people in favor of the constitution, they were not fringe. He was no, he, he was right he made there. Good arguments, and he yeah, 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 he yeah. was trying to be persuasive, and so he was making appealing yes. arguments. He was very it's true. good. It's true. You know, it's true. He it's one thing he abandoned the musical his, uh, got right. Man, he knew how to write well. He did. He did. And he I wish I could write time. that well. He was he was persuasive. Yeah, he uh, and he argued rightfully that one of the major problems that you could solve if you would if you had this federal government was you could actually increase taxes in ways that you can't increase them now because the states were competing with each other for low tax rates. So the best example of this is uh, was it was it Massachusetts Bay and New York. We're, were in serious competition for the shipping. And both of them were forced to keep their tariffs on imports extremely low. Because if they raise them, people would go to the other port. Mm -hmm. And Hamilton's like, wait, 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 this is going to be awesome. If you vote for us, both of you can raise them. In fact, Without we, could, raise, we could double or triple them. Yeah. And because both of you will do it, right? It's not a competition. You can team up here. And, and we'll, we'll set it, you know, at a federal level. It'll be it'll be awesome, and and there were other combining taxes too two, like that among the states. Two of conservatives, you know, favorite things: government monopoly, <laughs> increased taxation, and increased taxation. Right, right. This is this is wonderful. 
Uh, anyway, it, it's an interesting time as a, as a young student who was very conservative for a long time and then, uh, shifted more and more libertarian. I was always amazed at how libertarian the founders were. They're not. They're not. That was, that was me reading what I wanted to out of them. Don't let anybody <laughs> tell you that they are. They are not. Uh, Brad and I talk a lot about natural lights, rights. The founders did too. The, the founders were, were huge in pushing natural rights to the forefront of government and the role it's supposed to play. But if you actually looked at functionally what their idea of natural rights was versus what Brad and I articulate, they are not the same. The founders would not recognize it. Now, I think, I think what we've done is we've taken their ideas and we've made them internally consistent. Mm-hmm. We, we've said, wait, wait, well, wait, and, all of these can be reduced and, to the right of and, life and, and these Dan, other things. I was going to say is the, the biggest thing is we talk about the founders like they're this one unified <laughs> yeah, group yeah, 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 yeah. of wise yeah. old men who were these, you know, libertarian leaning conservatives who, who loved freedom more than anything else. Right. And, Radical revolutionaries. Yeah. Who, and who spent, you know, months coming up, like, how can we get this document just right so that a bill becomes a law in the most ethically appropriate manner and that government can survive <laughs> for as long as possible. And the more you read about what actually happened, first of all, just like today, these people had wildly different views. You know, mm-hmm, Hamilton mm-hmm. and Jefferson's a great example because everyone's familiar with the fact that that they had this long-standing disagreement bordering on a feud because their political <laughs> views were almost polar opposite. So divergent, yeah. And yet and yet these are the people who are who are considered founders, you know what I mean? They're considered that same group of wise old men, but they weren't. They were radically different as much as, you know, Republicans and Democrats are different today. And and so when they went and created this constitution, most of these people, most of these people had one priority, which is to get something workable out of that room. You know, you look at, you know, when when liberals and and conservatives today in politics are trying to get a a spending bill passed so the government can exist for one more year. It's like that where they have a lot of things they want, but more than anything, they're just trying to get a workable document out where they get at least some of the things they want and don't lose too much. And that's that's the Constitutional Convention. You know, you can go back and read the the notes from what happened every day in, in that in those rooms, and it's it's crazy. It's chaos. You know, it, <laughs> it is, is it is it is not how we picture it. It is not. Um it's interesting as you say that because I, ironically, my respect for the founders has increased over the years rather than decreased, even as I find that they disagree with me on, on, on so many things, right? Even, even as I'm dispelling these historical myths I have about them, my respect for them has increased. And even if from a, a religious perspective, I become more certain that there was some divine hand in it all. But the conclusion of that is not that these were extremely wise men who all agreed and saw eye to eye, right? It's, it's or that, that it was in a perfect this, document. Or that the verdict, yeah, or that the result was some kind of perfect thing. Um, that I, I don't think any of that's true. And there, there's no indication of that. There's obvious problems with it. Even if you set aside slavery, which you can't really do, <laughs> even if you did, uh, there's, 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 uh, a myriad of problems in it. Even, even Madison, who was, Matt, if you want a good example of someone who could really read history, 
Madison was astounding. Madison's writings, uh, the Federalist Papers, I, we mentioned them a couple times. I can tell you without looking at the names, whether Madison wrote it or somebody else. Mad- it's almost always Hamilton. Jay only wrote a couple, but Madison is just so perceptive and so like, so good at analyzing history and drawing on it and learning things from it in a way that's, that really is astounding to me. Uh, and there's a lot of wisdom there in his, in which is good because his hand was critical mm-hmm. in so many of the details. Yeah. He played a large role. He played a massive role of, of the, as far as the, the actual form of the constitution goes, I don't think anyone played a larger role than, than yeah, Madison. In terms of how our government plan. was shaped by the constitution mm-hmm. and you want to put that on one man, there's only one man to put it on. Yes. Yes. And he's drawing heavily from theorists like Montesquieu. Montesquieu, you read Montesquieu and some of the things that he, he notes about government when you really appreciate how novel they are. And even the way that he's systematically going through and thinking about these systems in isolation from one another, not as, not as like a political theorist thinking of human nature, but as a, as, as both that and this kind of ad- administrator thinking of, of how it's going the, to function, the, how it's going to piece together, how different <laughs> pieces in isolation work and how they will work with each other and these other details. He, he proposes so much of the base structure that Madison, uh, that Madison ends up in some ways improving upon and, and, and actually putting into practice. And there, and I, I dare say that as far as I'm aware, it, the constitution that came out of there, the actual form of the government, not necessarily the written document, though the written document is key for it. Uh, the actual way it worked was sheer genius and was among the most advanced things out there, if not the most advanced for its time. And so I can say all that with a lot of respect while at the same time thinking, you know, disagreeing with them fundamentally about the role of government, the way it interacts with natural rights and Mm -hmm. the historical narratives that we hear about it and the way people think of the founders and their political views. There's, and I know there's there's so many pieces there, right? And we could talk about any one of those. Uh, to, to talk about this, Brad and I are simplifying. Because to do anything else would take forever, right? We'd be reading to you firsthand sources and being in, in letting you draw your own conclusions. And yeah, we because do any kind of any kind of <laughs> conclusions that we <laughs> draw is once right. again simplifying. Right. Which which brings us to a critical point about interpreting history. If you are listening to a historical narrative, it is simplified. It's got to be, unless you really have all day and you're actually getting into to first-hand sources. Even then, the selection of which first-hand sources is a kind of simplification, right? It's, it's a reduction of all of the information you could have on that subject. And by the, the act of selecting some information to give you and other information not to give you, Brad and I are presenting to you our interpretation. Our it's narrative, ine- it's, yeah. Right. It's, it's inevitably, we're telling you a story. I think it's a better story. And I'm trying not to, in as many areas as possible, not to state broad generalizations that I can't back up. Which is, which but is so hard. It's so hard. <laughs> but we're inevitably telling you a story uh, from a set of information from which thousands of other stories could be told. And often, and maybe our story is true, or at least true enough for the level of detail we're looking at. And yet you could look at these same things and get a second story that was unrelated to ours, you know, that had drawn different conclusions that was also true. And this is the difficulty of history. It's so 
difficult. Uh, I, one of my favorite economists wrote a lengthy bit about historians because he thought we were, we were seriously underestimating the role they play in society because of the sheer complexity of what they were doing and the necessity for selection of some things to present, which means you're leaving other things out, right? That, that just the selection process, um, means that they're presenting to you a story that they've selected. And as such, they had better be good at selecting the story. <laughs> they'd better be, they'd better have the wisdom to present to you something substantial, something worth your time and not just worth your time, but correct and, and more valuable than the other stories they could be presenting to you because they could be even true ones. And that's, that is no, <laughs> I don't admire the ta I don't admire, I don't envy the position of a historian. And often, and whenever we're telling you history, uh, we try to use specific stories because it's, it's easier. These generalizations are just too hard to get wrong, right? It's too easy. It's too easy to miss little details. And no doubt we have here, but it's just, it's just interesting. And, and so if you if you go to school, this is the point of this. If you go to school and you learn history, you're going to be taught a story. That story inevitably has the biases and the, the problems that all history that's reduced, which is all history essentially, <laughs> is going to have. You're not necessarily being lied to. They're probably not trying to deceive you. The fact that you hadn't heard of the, the Tulsa massacre may not necessarily imply that people are trying to hide things from you so you don't know the true history, right? Because there's, there's a very limited amount of time to tell you anything takes time they're going to tell you maybe 10 things out of a million things they could tell you that they're aware mm -hmm. of. And there's millions more, right? It's, it's a, it's a necessary part of the art. The United States is going to, the public school is going to give you a propagandized version of American history. And that can be better or worse. And it can be, you know, it could focus on the right things or completely irrelevant things. There's the scale is not merely, is it right or wrong? It's a, it's very complicated. And this is, this is why like history, history could always be taught better. And we should be always be trying to find better ways and the right things to teach through history. So Dan, you talked about, about, you know, stories and narratives and how we're trying to present a different narrative about the founding as being not this, not this, this, this group of wise men who come together to create the perfect document, but rather a group of of very intelligent men who were very very different had very different agendas and goals coming together in a time of of political upheaval and and even a degree of desperation to try to make <laughs> right. a workable document and what they come out with is actually very good especially for the time it's incredible but it's still got more flaws than you can shake a stick at not to mention the numerous flaws that you have among the individuals which doesn't necessarily mean that what they accomplish is in any way less real and less powerful which is a, right. which is a different narrative and the question and this is all one layer of government in a in an area where there are many uh-huh and and you can always say well well why is it so important to have that narrative versus the narrative we had before? Because the, the narrative we had before was cleaner and it was prettier and it would made us feel better. And <laughs> yes. the answer is very simple because the 1619 project and the ideas about colonialism and systemic racism associated with them are a direct 
rebellion against that rose-colored viewing of the American founding. And it, it all stems from one idea, and that's what the 1619 Project is about, is, is slavery. Because if, if these men truly were not necessarily perfect, but very darn close to perfect, and their political ideas were right, and are the political ideas we need now, and so many of them were slave owners, and in the Constitution explicitly protected the right to own slaves, and that was and that was baked in in every aspect of the Constitution. How, how do you defend that? And and the answer the answer is that you don't, and so you reject the American founding fathers, you reject reject the Constitution. And you reject what stems from it. Because, because if they're either, if that's the political philosophy we should have, if that's the political philosophy conservatives say they have, then I guess conservatives really are racist. And you can see how people who are woke can start to believe that. Because what conservatives are saying is these people were right, especially politically, and ignoring the fact that these people condoned and protected slavery amongst other other mistakes that they've made but that's the that's the glaringly yeah. obvious one slavery and the indians how they dealt with the indians would be the other major would be the one other major would... one and and that one is that one is definitely major that one is a little bit different because mm -hmm. because it took place over so much more time you know that's that's yeah a, and it varies it, so much from... yeah exactly mm -hmm. while the founders didn't have because the federal government wasn't really interacting with how they all of the all of the interactions with the natives were happening on a state or local level you know there there wasn't any place in at least in how they wrote it that wasn't an issue at the time and so they didn't focus on it and so it hasn't become as much of an issue on on the american founding definitely when you look back at what america has done then absolutely, I think it's one of the the very large issues. Yes, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. This is and this is an application of of critical theory, not to be confused with critical race theory. Critical race theory would say, you know, this is this is more Kenny's interpretation of things that's become popular today, where you get the the idea that disparities indicate racial racism and and systemic racism and such. But but critical theory in itself is specifically. Uh, the lens through which you you question whether or not the words are honest and whether or not there's actually ulterior motives underneath them that are actually a, a reach for power of some kind. So it develops in, in law. Uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time going into it today. I was going to, but we're already pretty far into this. Um, but but you, what you do is you look back and you look back at the founding and you'd say, wait, 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 wait. For all of their talk of natural rights and things, there are some serious problems. For all of their talk of, of equality in these things, it doesn't seem like they believed it because they didn't apply it fairly. They didn't apply it in ways where it should obviously have been applied. Yeah, and it's something that people do all the time today when looking at the other right. at the other political party. You know, right. you know the the liberals look at Trump and say he's he he says he believes in freedom or he says he believes in rights, but then look at all these other things that he says or these other things that he does that completely contradict that. And then conservatives yes. look at Biden and do the exact same thing. They He says he wants this and says that, but then here's what he's actually doing. Yeah, which which is worth which is worth considering, really, if you if you reduced it to the idea that, wait, 
if someone says something and they're doing something else, make a hypocrite, then maybe they don't mean what they say, Yeah, <laughs> which is fair enough. Which makes sense. I, I think that's, uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely does it make sense, uh, which is why it's a useful thing to consider. If someone's claiming something politically and they're acting otherwise, you go, uh, maybe they don't mean that. Maybe that's, maybe that's BS. That healthy degree uh, of cynicism again. Right, right. There's a reason why critical theories are sometimes uh, jokingly called cynical theories, and because there is something cynical about that worldview, but it's also sometimes right. Uh, and, and in this case, it looks to some degree like it's right, right? There's, there seems to be a large degree of hypocrisy or something at play here. At the very least, hypocrisy. Um, you get people like Thomas Jefferson, a slave owner who's, who never frees his slaves. Uh, there's some, I believe there's some indication he wanted to and things. He's in so much debt. He actually, I believe, sells them off when he dies because his, his estate is underwater and whatnot. Uh, his, his weird Monticello area where he does all kinds of things is a the polymath that he was uh but he uh he's a good example of someone who was going to write into the declaration of independence uh more explicit condemnations mm-hmm. about slavery and the legal requirements yeah, of the about crown something that he was actively actively practicing yes. in, in his actual life right right where he indi- where he tried to blame slavery on on the king. Mm-hmm. And to some degree, the blame is warranted, but not as entirely, not certainly not entirely when you own slaves. You don't have to. <laughs> no one's, no one's got a gun to Thomas's head. Uh, and so there's, there's some obvious problems there, real problems that are, that are, that you can't merely shy away from. But the 1619 project looks past it all and says, so, so look, America must actually, the, the, so much of what you see is actually an excuse to exercise power over others. And so you get the ideas of colonialism, that people go in and they, they make these colonies so that they can make a profit and so that they can exploit the people and so that they can take the land from them like we did the Indians and so that they can enslave people and so that they can, you know, it's, it's, they're actually acting for their own benefit. Mm-hmm. The founding fathers, for all of their high talk, were actually just people with a power that were abusing it at the end of the day. And maybe they're a little more than that, but they're, but they're at least that. But that's the important aspect of who they were. Right, right. And so 1619 becomes the argued founding day. They're like, well, we weren't founded in the 1700s. When it really started is when we started to enslave people. That's 1619, which I believe is when the first slave ship arrived. Is that right? I think so. I think so. that's what it was. Or when they, I don't remember if it's when they were taken or when they Yeah, it was, it's arrived. one of those critical events very early yes. on in the slave trade. Yes, so it's a, it's a rewriting. And so it's a new narrative. It's yeah, it's a new story. It's a story that says, look, we've all we've because been unjust you, you, to you, you just from said the rewriting in that in that yes. uh, is more accusatory than a, than a narrative because you could argue no, that what we just did was a rewriting. Yes, no, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Uh, it's a it's a re- I say rewriting in part because the person who proposed it got some basic facts that are demonstrable wrong. But that's, but that's beside the point because they could still be right about the general narrative. But you're right. It, this is a different narrative. This says, look, not only were we wrong about a lot of things, but this is the most important thing you can pull from this, from this era. And they tie it into things like the police. You should defund the police in part because the police initially as an institution were largely responsible for tracking down slaves. And so there's, there's this history to them that you didn't know. That makes, that 
should change the way you look at them as an institution. And there's an additional idea tacked onto all of this, which is that, you know, something created for that purpose must ultimately still be serving that purpose in some way. Mm-hmm. That, that these, mm-hmm. that these things are not flexible, that an institution with a, that, that some way they are guilty in relation to this. Yeah, that, they, that this that I mean that's that is definitely a huge part of it is that the American institution as a whole was built on slavery and for such a large portion mm-hmm. of its history was was enslaving people and so regardless of what it says its purpose is now it's still going to be oriented in that direction that mm-hmm. it has too much institutional inertia momentum and will continue to try and oppress people any way that it can Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And, and, and that to this day, we're still benefiting from the exploitation of those things. Uh, and that, uh, and that as such, there's some kind of debt owed, uh, and, and you as can, a result of that exploitation. You can, you can see where this argument comes into play because you look at, you look at slavery in the South where these people were, were just, just being oppressed. You know, in the truest sense of the word, they're being yes. oppressed. There's, there's not much more oppression yeah, than slavery. Oppressed and exploited in that context. Those yeah. words are often abused. In there, that, that's exactly what was happening yeah, in the like worst way. Yeah, it's, but then, then they're freed. And then you get Jim Crow laws and you get the KKK and you get other more subtle and obviously they're not those those ways are not super <laughs> subtle but once again compared to slavery they are more subtle ways of oppressing those same people and so the argument is is that the institution of oppression is already there and so you block one door and it's just going to find another another avenue and so then it then it finds jim crow laws and then that gets shut mm-hmm. down mm-hmm. and then it finds redlining and and um and you know tax codes that that oppress you know minorities and 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 various other things right and mm-hmm. and it's all just a continuation of of really colonialism and this idea of of these white men in the american founding who created a system that was designed to keep power in their hands through the oppression of others yes today even to today manifest in the fact of how many uh, black people are in prison versus white people. Right? Yeah, that's another great now, example. Of now, that, yeah. now the manifestation of it is in the disproportionate uh, effects that, which is why Kendi yeah. Kendi is uh, in a lot of ways a historian, right? He takes part in a number of of historical books that go back and try and reinterpret these things and try and propose a different narrative, as you were saying. The and you can see how, as, as Brad pointed out, I want to just highlight it again because I think it's so useful. This narrative stands pretty strong if what you are used to is a narrative about the supreme virtue and wisdom of the founders. And, and against and that simple backdrop of, a, of an inspired constitution. Which is, which is funny because, because the thing is, is conservatives hear that narrative and they try and defend the founding by trying to make it look even better you know trying to <laughs> to to pretty it up which they think will help their argument but in reality is actually just adding fuel to the fire and that's part of why we wanted to talk about this is because because conservatives are building a a narrative for american history that's 
only going to support and encourage things like the 1619 project. And it's an, no, yeah, go. I was going to say, I was going to say it's an, it's a case where people with good intentions, we want our citizens to respect the government, support the, support the government and, you know, be, be good citizens and be, and, and have a, and have patriotism, respect, respect the flag and in these other things. These are classic virtues of citizenship that governments for thousands of years have tried to instill. And these are the kind of things that, you know, Cicero will talk about these things. He's trying to inspire the young men of his time to public service in the Roman way. And, uh, which, which involves a lot of self-sacrifice and things, some noble things there to serve his, his, to serve Rome. And to step up to the plate and take responsibility when otherwise they'd just be messing around except from wealthy families and things. Anyway, um, that's, those same appeals are made, are made today. There, that's, in some ways, that's still the conservative narrative around joining the military as opposed to going to college and party. This call to public, ser- public service mm-hmm. and these, these ways in which you can give back and, and support the, the country that you owe so much to with this, with this necessarily long legacy of good things that you can be a part of, right? That story of, of propaganda is, is in many people's eyes and in many of the great political thinkers of the past necessary. It's a, it's a noble lie as some people, some of them have described it. It's not quite true and they know it. Cicero knows he's feeding them bullcrap. He's at a time Cicero is going to be killed by the leaders because they're so corrupt and things. Anyway, he, or, or at least chased away. I don't remember how he died exactly in exile, but, uh, but he's trying to get them to tell them this story that he knows isn't exactly true to give them the kind of, to get them to behave in the way he For thinks they should. Way, yeah. Kind of right? like this is propaganda. That's why I call it propaganda. COVID. Right. That's why I called it propaganda. He's looking, he's looking for a particular action in response to this. And he knows it's not exactly true. And that's, that's, uh, it's funny. You let that go on a few generations and people won't know it's not exactly true anymore. <laughs> right? People will forget. The, the average person doesn't know that. They don't know that the things they've been told are myths. It's a mythologized version of the U.S. history to get them to respect it more than they might otherwise. But I think that whole idea is wrong. I think it's what wrong. What idea? The mythology? The I- the idea that you should tell people a noble lie about the history that gets them to act in the way you think they should. I think, I think the, I think the fact that there's a lie involved should tip you off to that, that it's not going to go well. But if that doesn't, <laughs> consider what it's done in our country, truly, in, and the way it sets up the 1619 project, which is a lie in its own way. It's got, it's got problems yeah, it's, in it. It's that a we've mythology. Discussed at other as times. Well. They're, they're both. Right. They're both right. mythologies, and they're both extreme mythologies. Yes, yes. Neither of these could possibly be true. In a, in a, even a cursory glance at history, if you're reading it from uh, good sources, will will show you that some of these things are there's obvious reason to be skeptical. And you dig a little bit, and sure enough, you'll find that they're the the dots don't align like that, and they never do. Um, well, and 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 it's important to make a distinction between truth and facts because. Because yes. both of these are based on facts 
that are that at least most of them or a large yes. number of them are accurate. You know what I mean? Yes. And <laughs> whether or not those specific facts are accurate only have some effect on the truth because because truth is more than just the facts. The truth is about the conclusions they're drawing from it. You know that that what's happening with these two narratives is they're cherry picking facts in order to tell you this is what happened. And so what what you're saying, Dan, just to clarify, is not that the facts that either of these groups are cherry-picking are necessarily false. Some of right. them may be, and some of them have to be, just because of how history works. We get things wrong all the time. But that's yeah. not the concern. The problem is, is the narrative that's being presented is false, is inaccurate in just the most fundamental sense. Yes, yes. The facts seem to present a story that isn't that actually isn't true, isn't a reflection of the time or what the people thought or how they were dealing with these problems generally. Um, so you get, you get, yeah, you're right. The level of fact and detail, they're often correct. Sometimes they're wrong there. As I said, the 1619 project was notorious for this. It had, had a lot of basic facts wrong um, initially. Uh, that, and you're absolutely right, that it's the narrative level that is the true historian's art. And that's, that's the difficult level. That's the part. And people are always wondering, what is the right message? The 1619 Project is not just a reinterpreta uh, reinterpretation. I'm saying that again. It's not just a new narrative. It's a new narrative with a very particular end, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's not chance that it happens to be about race. Right? No, it's, you, they, it's... They didn't come to that randomly. Yeah, it's, it's explicitly about an agenda. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, which is just but, so but interesting. So is, but so is the other one, like you're saying. The other one is propaganda as well. It does have very clear goals. Yeah, it's just so interesting because the founders, like as I mentioned earlier, when I look, when I have a political question and I look at what the founders might think on this, often I find that they never ask that question. And so I, sh I would be wrong to assume that some of the things they said are an answer to a question they're not actually asking. Now, I, I might tangentially be able to answer to that question by, things, yeah. yes, and glean some insights to it. Um, and people that are good independent thinkers are really useful. People like Thomas Jefferson for all his flaws was intellectually a giant in some ways. Um, but yeah, it, it's just, if you, if you go into it without those biases, you'll find the questions they are trying to answer and you can learn all kinds of interesting things as a, as a one final thought, and we'll, we'll put this to put this to bed. One, one last observation that I have is that, uh, is I, is we talk about this, obviously one way to know that these narratives are wrong is to know enough of the facts. That's not a realistic solution. I don't think we what we need to be doing is teaching graduate level history courses to everybody, right? I think frankly that would be a waste of their time. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's not. Maybe that would be a better. It's certainly a better use of their time than some things that people often do. But that's that's one possibility, right? We say everyone needs to be better educated. I hate that solution because I don't think it's a realistic solution so much of the time. Because it's not practical. Yes. And learning and learning about government, you shouldn't have to have a high level of understanding about government just to avoid being lied to every day, right? If you're being <laughs> lied to every day, maybe there's another problem. Maybe, maybe the solution is that they should stop lying or something like that. So, you know what so I mean? what's your solution, Dan? Uh, well, that's, that's what Hit I'm, me with it. I'm not sure I've arrived at a better solution. Uh, other I, than to say that I wish government did less. I can't imagine a way to simplify the process of analyzing government. 
other than to simplify the process of government. Right? There's, there doesn't seem to be a shortcut. Um, other than you to have clear principles. We've talked about that before too. To have ideas that reduce to simple principles that even if you didn't know the details, you could arrive at the right conclusions. And that's why, that's why if in the limited time you do have studying, try to find correct principles, things that you can, that can be reduced to almost as a general bias per se, uh, in that, in that you have a sense of the right direction and you have different ideas that let you spot some spot to let you navigate life basically and navigate government in a shorthand way. But again, that takes, that takes people who do need the details to develop that shorthand. So that takes, that takes, I don't know. At the end of the day, there is, there still are other elements. I don't know. It's a solution. It's a solution. It's a problem I think about all the time because I talk to people who want to know answers and we're, and we're, that's exactly what we're trying to do. We're trying to help. Mm -hmm. But I don't want our help to have to be like, oh, you actually have to spend years studying. No, and that's, and that's a solution you, and, you and can't so, sell. So here's, so here's what I'm going to propose because as, as Dan said, as someone who's, who's learned a, not a lot of history, but at least a decent amount of history. And see, actually, I would disagree with that statement that I just made, even though I was the one who made it. <laughs> I, I feel like I, in terms of, of facts and details in, in history, I don't know a whole lot. What I've gained most from the history classes that I've had, especially at, at, at a, you know, an undergraduate level is learning how to look at history and how to understand that there are multiple layers and how the stories are, are, are stories that are built on facts that may or may not be, may be accurate or right in different ways. And it's more complicated and messy. And, and so what I've learned from all of that is instead of viewing things as, as, you know, a critical theory or as this, this, this rose colored lenses, what I always view things as when I look back at history is I always just think of it as foggy, as messy. And remembering that is an incredibly useful tool. And it's not, it's not cynicism in the normal sense when we talk about right. politics, but it's just understanding that it's never going to be so simple. And so I understand that you can look at the American founding and you can have a thousand different narratives that can all line up with different facts. And there's actually tools you can use to, to help, to help understand the narratives that you're hearing and understand how accurate they are without spending years, you know, years mm -hmm. of, of education or hours of research. It can actually be done quite quickly. And that's a skill that you can develop right now without anything else just by listening to the narratives that are being told and doing a little bit of research and doing a little bit of critical thinking, logical thinking and analysis of how that actually stacks up. Right. And one of the most helpful things that would allow you to do that is having a, a familiarity with the philosophical ideas behind them, right? The, the, the one step back, the actual broad theories and things so that when you see it in a person manifest as an ideology of some kind, you can recognize it for what it is. Yeah, that's, 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 I'm glad what you said about it, about it being foggy and remembering that. So often our, our mistaken historical interpretations come because we look, we look at it and we think we've arrived at the answer. So we stop looking at it mm -hmm. right? when, when we needed to go deeper. We needed to mm -hmm. look a little further. We needed to check out, uh, competing narratives. We needed to com 
compare them. If you haven't, if you're not hurting narratives that contradict the one you're listening to, you really do not even know the one you're listening to well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we hope this has been useful to help you read history and get into it and also to debunk a few, uh, a few of the things that are commonly talked about with regards to history and U.S. history. And these were some interesting ideas. Um, look a little deeper into the history, ask questions, try not to read your own conclusions or your own questions, even if you can avoid it, back into the way that people look at it. Don't look at history with either rose-colored glasses or the grime-colored glasses of, of, criti- of pure critical theory, right? <laughs> and with that, thank you for listening. This has been an episode of Rethinking Politics. You can find us on all of the major podcasting apps or on YouTube. You can reach out to us at rethinkingpoliticspodcast at gmail.com or you can visit our website at rethinkingpolitics.podbean.com where you can support us via Patreon. Thanks and have a wonderful day.